Major support for Carolina Business Review provided by Grant Thornton. Operating in more than 100 countries, our tax audit and advisory professionals specialize in helping companies unlock their growth potential. Colonial Life, providing benefits to employees to help them protect their family, their finances, and their futures. High Point University, the premier life skills university, focused on preparing students for the world as it is going to be. And Sonoco, a global manufacturer of consumer and industrial packaging products and provider of packaging services with more than 300 operations in 35 countries. During this election year, the question is, why do we poll? If it's questionable inaccuracy, how important is it? Also, the public health care crisis has laid bare the gap between those looking for a job and jobs offered, and that gap is even larger than it was before. I am Chris William, and thank you again for watching and supporting Carolina Business Review, the longest running and most widely watched program on Carolina business, policy, and public affairs in a moment. We will start this dialogue later. Dr. Tim Hardy, president of the South Carolina Technical College System. Gratefully acknowledging support by Martin Marietta, a leading provider of natural resource-based building materials, providing the foundation upon which our communities improve and grow. Blue Cross Blue Shield of South Carolina, an independent licensee of the Blue Cross and Blue Shield Association. Visit us at SouthCarolinaBlues.com. The Duke Endowment, a private foundation enriching communities in the Carolinas through higher education, healthcare, rural churches, and children's services. Bearings, a leading global asset management firm dedicated to meeting the evolving investment and capital needs of its clients. Learn more at bearings.com. On this edition of Carolina Business Review, Dr. Mark Little, Executive Director of CREATE at the University of North Carolina, Carl Blackstone, President and CEO of the Columbia Chamber, and special guest, Dr. Tim Hardy, President of the South Carolina Technical College System. And welcome again to our program. Thank you all for joining us. And certainly a special uh, thanks to our guests who are no strangers to this program, Dr. Mark Little and Mr. Carl Blackstone. Gentlemen, welcome to the program. Uh, Carl, I'm going to start with you. You're the uh, recovering politico to some degree. <laughs> You've got some... You've got some history in, in public policy. Carl, you know, as we close in on, on arguably a very unique election cycle and an election season, polling has become center stage once again, but maybe now more than ever. Why do we poll, given that sometimes it's way off? I mean, if, if nothing else, the last, year, last uh, presidential election proved that polling can get wrong, right? And it, and it has. It's, it's, a, it's not a science per se, but... People are, are glued to this notion that it, it actually adds to the polarization, quite frankly, but, but it, it's also a, a fundraising uh, driver, right? People do use polling to, to help raise money. No doubt this year it's unbelievable the amount of money that's been raised uh, both in South Carolina and nationally. So, uh, but people are drawn to it. People want to see and want to monitor. And that's part of the 24 hour news cycle that we're in now that, What's the latest update? What's, I mean, most folks are polling once a week, but you got to have a poll of the day. Mm -hmm. um, but people are closely monitoring it, and it is tight. It, there's no doubt that the um, political divide is, is greater now than it's been in a long, long time. And so it just heightens the awareness of polls. 
Dr. Little, do, does polling exacerbate or does it, is it insightful and is it additive to the political process? I don't think it's additive, um, unfortunately. I think it's one of these tools that when it initially came out was useful because, um, honestly, because people were honest when they were <laughs> responding to polls um, and because the mechanism, you know, people had a home phone, everyone had a home phone and you could get to people. But now uh, a lot of people are just um, unwilling to tell the truth and uh, be open and honest. And so a lot of the information to the point, you know, that, that Carl was making, it's not necessarily the analysis that's wrong, it's that the data that goes into it is not correct. Um, and so I think it's not useful in that sense. Um, I think for all the reasons Carl mentioned, it, it can be used and becomes useful. It also is very useful for media because they want top stories to come out to generate interest. Um, but it doesn't tell us good information um, and it obscures the real deep conversations that I think people really need to have that sh would show that people aren't as far apart from each other as a lot of the polling seems to suggest. So Mark, do you, do you think, and this is probably not the right way to say it, but do you think respondents are gaming the system, maybe subconsciously or consciously? Uh, I, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know. I, don't, I would think not intentionally, but I, I really don't know. I mean, that's part of the problem. We don't, <laughs> we don't, really, we don't really know the answer to that. Um, so yeah, I, I don't know. It also, if I could jump in there, Chris, it also could be the question itself. It's not black and white questions most of the time. It's, it's, it's a scenario question. Would you be in favor of this candidate if they did this? Push polling and all are very popular these days. So it's as much, I don't know if it's the respondents that are trying to game the system. Is it the questionnaire, questioners gaming the system? It's so not to keep chasing this down a rabbit hole, but so last question on this, this is, is polling designed to, to make hyperbolic headlines or is it, is, is, it, is it becoming more hyperbolic or is it designed to really uncover data? I mean, I think the intent of most polling organizations is to find good information. Yeah. Uh, but I just don't think that that's the, it's the tool anymore to, to do that. And but we're, we've stuck with it. And I think there's another layer of people that may not be the pollsters themselves that then take that information and make it very polarized. And I'll just say again, I think the role of the media in this is, is pretty significant um, to, because we're, we all are excited about it. We're all interested in it. We eat it up. Media gives it back to us. We eat it up and it's just a cycle of, of information, but it's, it's actually not factual. It, it, so, Carl, let, let me take this a little bit further. Polling has become center stage with a lot of the races, and certainly the Senate races in both Carolinas have become really the races to watch nationally. You could say, uh, at least in North Carolina's case, uh, it is the swingiest of the swing states, and that's not my term. Someone used that. So uh, the Senate, U.S. Senate race, uh, Lindsey Graham's seat is, is neck and neck. The Tillis Cunningham race in North Carolina has been tight. We'll see what happens there. So how does, how does the polling, as we launch off this polling question, how do you think it ends up showing up after election day in that specific Senate race for, for uh, Lindsey Graham? I, I think it's actually, uh, the, the polling is very, very close. And I think it's going to be a very, very close election. I think the polling is accurate uh, in this particular case. What's been astounding is um, if you take a historical perspective, about 15 years ago when Jim DeMint was running, it was the most expensive race in South Carolina history at 12 million bucks. Fast forward to today, uh, Jamie Harrison's going to be raising close to $110 million for this race by himself. 
that's hard dollars. That doesn't include independent expenditures. Uh, and so add another 60 uh, that, that Lindsay's raised. I mean, that is unbelievable uh, money tied to this race, which shows the interest. A lot of most of it, uh, less than 10% has been raised in the state of South Carolina. So most all of it's coming from out of state, both sides. Uh, but it shows, uh, one, it shows how important that particular seat is. And the Senate today is very, very close. Uh, we'll see how it pans out. But I, I, it's going to be a nail biter. You know, I'd love to chase this down and ask you both if, if this kind of political spending is sustainable. But, you know, of course, that's going to take us in a whole other direction. Dr. Lowe, let me come back to something. You're at, the, uh, you're at Carolina. You're at North Carolina. I want to be careful about that. That's right. Thank depends you. on what city you're in. Uh, but at UNC, you run a uh, money, many of your responsibilities. You're part of what's, pros what's called Prosperity Lab. So you're curating data around workforce development, demographics, race relations, et cetera, et cetera. What have we seen given what's, what COVID now has done to this idea of the gap between those looking for a job and the jobs available? Well, um, one, I'll say since COVID hit, a lot of the data that we have is going to be anecdotal just because it's, I mean, we're in, we're in the middle of this. Um, that being said, Unfortunately, um, the gaps in income and wealth that have really persisted in the United States since like around 1980 and have started to grow and grow have just gotten worse in this situation. And it's interesting. I, mean, I think that, uh, you know, you look at the, 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 the overall unemployment numbers, they're coming down. Um, but what's happening um, and what happened during this, this crisis is um, the kinds of jobs that are available. And the wages of those jobs, it's really just being pushed and pushed down and, and flattened. Um, and so, I mean, just anecdotally, I'm sure if you're, able, if you're out and about, um, there's lots of retail jobs available, um, fast food, um, et cetera. Um, but other industries that are, that are much more, uh, pay higher wages are, 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 are not mm -hmm. available for folks. Um, so I, I think the, the longer, the long-term concern that we're going to have our economy is similar to the last time we talked, it's similar to the last time we talked, but it's even worse. It's like, you know, how do we, how do we have opportunities for people to change, you know, their personal trajectories, the trajectory of their family? Because those, those jobs aren't necessarily there right now. And my concern is that they're, they're not going to be there um, mm -hmm. in the next five to 10 even. Hey, Chris, can I ask a question? Do you mind? No, uh, not at all. Does, does any of the anecdotal uh, data that you have, show where those job gaps are, where are they rural or urban, or is it a combination of both? Does any of the early information gleam anything? Um, no, it's more about industry sector. So, yeah. um, so I said retail, um, some food, some ag are doing really well. Um, some real estate is doing really well. And some of the, some of the higher end jobs that are doing well around sort of the finance side of real estate um, is doing quite well right now. Um, but, um, you know, some of the larger industries, things related to oil and gas, um, a lot of manufacturing, uh, value-added ag, a lot of these are down and, and they're complicated, right? Because there's these supply chains that have gotten messed up. And um, so some of that will sort of itself out. Uh, but as we've seen looking at the stock market, right, um, companies have just become more and more and more efficient. And that, what that means is they have less and less of a need for people actually working. Um, and so if we can have this kind of, uh, GDP, right, and stock market that we have right now, uh, with the level of unemployment that we've had, and the kinds of jobs that people are in, I mean, that's, that's a, it's a concern. It's a big concern.
so Carl, to that point, if we, I don't want to use the term and, and minimize it, but if we discount the public health crisis that we call COVID-19, and we get past it, and there's a vaccine, and we get some back to some what, what new normal looks like, would you expect the gap, as Mark just described it, would you expect that gap to go back to normalization? I mean, that's a great question. I mean, you think that we've talked about this before. What happened since the Great Depression is the urbanization. You saw that exacerbated with the Great Recession in 2007, 2008, 2009. What does that mean? How does this COVID impact there? I'm intrigued. Are people less likely to go to an urban market? Are companies less likely to go to an urban market because of fears? We're seeing the real estate in South Carolina is through the roof right now of folks moving out of the big cities. Um, how does that translate to jobs? Will companies take a risk and move to a rural community? That, I'm, I'm very interested to see how that plays out. You know, for, for both of you, and this is going to be no surprise to you or any of the people that are watching this dialogue, most likely education is a very key factor in all of what we talked about. And we're going to bring on now our special guest who uh, has something uh, to say about education, been involved in it for quite a while. We will meet him in just a moment. He joins us again on this program, and we're glad he does. We welcome again Dr. Tim Hardy, president of the South Carolina Technical College System. Dr. Hardy, welcome to the program. Nice to see you, and you look like you're safe and healthy. Doing well. Thanks, Chris. Yes, sir. Uh, Dr. Hardy, let's start with enrollment. That's always a, a debate within technical and community colleges versus your counterparts in the four-year education space. But is it is it different this time? Is it, is is there some unique element around enrollment comparatively to last economic disruptions this time? Uh, I would say yes. Uh, Honestly, uh, we're here in October, uh, which is pretty much a middle of the semester uh, time point for our 16 colleges in South Carolina. This academic semester will probably end up somewhere in the five to six percent range of a decline in enrollment. now, some of that is obviously there's a lot of uncertainty, caution uh, out there in, in our various communities across the state. Uh, I would say it's not just South Carolina, though. That's really a national trend uh, at this point for community colleges across the country. The enrollment's down a little bit. Uh, one area where we are seeing a, a change, I would say, somewhat from in the past is we're seeing a rise in the number of students coming straight out of high school to the technical college system. Uh, We've always uh, done extremely well with our technical programs, but we're starting to see a lot of students that are choosing, uh, I would call it the start of their uh, path to a four-year degree because of the cost savings with the technical college system. I know you've got Carl on with us this morning. He's there in Columbia. Probably a good example is Midlands Technical College there and their partnership with the University of South Carolina. A student that does the first two years at Midlands Technical College and then transfer to do their junior and senior years at University of South Carolina, there's about a 30,000 cost saving for that student or parent uh, that's, if you will, writing the check. Uh, they're still able to earn their bachelor's degree from the University of South Carolina, but they've saved about mm-hmm. $30,000 uh, during that process. Uh, our system as a whole actually has about 1,000 transfer students at the University of South Carolina each year. So we've got good partners with our four-year institutions, but we are starting to see more students that are 
uh, good shoppers, I would say, in terms of uh, just trying to save money where they can. Carl? Hey, good, good to see you, Dr. Hardy. Um, quick question as it relates, we've got wonderful relationships with our, our technical colleges and mainly as it relates to apprenticeship programs that y'all have spent a lot of time and energy on creating at the, at the statewide level. One of the issues that we seem to have with some businesses is the accreditation process of starting new programs within the technical college system. What's the future hold for technical college system programming? And is there a way, if it takes 24 months to get a program accredited, is that the right approach? Is there a, it seems counter to what innovation and entrepreneurship are doing these days, which is quick. Let's, let's, let's amend things quickly and get a new program up and running. Accreditation doesn't help there. Are, is there another path that we should be looking at to train a workforce? Well, I'll, I'll use a good example. My office is in Columbia, where you are, Carl, but I'm actually in Anderson at one of our uh, colleges, Tri-County Technical College, this morning. The reason I'm up here is uh, for a youth apprenticeship signing. There's a business here uh, by the name of uh, Arthrex. Uh, started about two years ago. They're up to 300 employees. We'll, we'll move to about a thousand employees. They make, uh, if you need a knee replacement or hip replacement, that's what they make uh, is CNC work. But yesterday they had a young high school student from TL Hannah High School that is a high school student. He's earning college credit at the same time. And he's actually employed there at Arthrex with a full-time job after he graduates from high school. And I will also add at $25 an hour. So right. not, not bad for an 18 year old, uh, but that's, uh, you, you mentioned sort of, we have to be flexible and innovative and find new pathways beyond the traditional four-year degree um, or even our two-year degree. The, the reality is there's a lot of short-term training programs that get people in the workforce quickly. Dr. Little, question? Yeah, so I want to follow up on this idea of kind of changing and being flexible. You know, I'm sitting at a four-year residential university that is just still trying to figure out how to handle COVID-19 and the situation that we're in. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about some of the things that the system has done to accommodate the health concerns that people might have and if you think any of those changes are going to be longer term or permanent, and do you see any opportunities for the community college system, given some of these trends or changes that, that may become permanent? Um, thanks, Mark. I appreciate the question. I, I, I would say that um, the short answer is I think they will become permanent. Uh, I think it's a new world for how we deliver higher education. We moved everything online with the technical college system back in March because we didn't have a choice. Uh, to do that. Fortunately, we had the infrastructure to be able to do that. Now in South Carolina, one of the problems we have run into is while we have the ability to deliver coursework, rural communities don't have the broadband to be able to receive what we have. You can have the best instruction in the world, but if you don't have a way for the students to access it. So we had to move to making our parking lots available for students to come and you know, receive service, just all kind of different ways, local libraries, the state of South Carolina bought 150,000 hotspots to distribute in rural parts across the state. Um, certainly we're offering a lot more of what we would call hybrid uh, asynchronous classes than what we have done in the past. Uh, 
one of the problems we run into, as you can imagine, it's a bit different from you there at UNC. Um, so many of our technical programs that we offer, uh, whether that's nursing or teaching someone to be a welder, there's a certain amount of face-to-face -face instruction that you just simply need uh, from that. But we do a lot of simulation labs. Uh, so I would say the answer is, we have uh, grown in our flexibility because we had to, but I think long-term for our system, it actually will be a good thing. President Harding, let me, let me drill down on something that you just said about community colleges in general have been known to do this asynchronous, synchronous virtual learning for a long time. It's, it's not anything new. However, um, and I don't want to start a row between the community or the technical college system and the four-year education, but there are lawsuits Duke is, is being sued, Brown, Rutgers, North Carolina are being sued by students and parents saying that we did not, in their words, to some degree, we didn't pay for a virtual experience, so we think that the tuition is too high. So I wanna come back to, does, does this end up lending itself to more students looking more seriously at a technical college education to start or even to finish technical or community college education, this, this challenge that you are watching, I'm sure closely, at the four-year schools? Uh, I would probably answer that, and I'd be interested to see whether Mark would agree with me, but I think that it's not that we, uh, an either or, I think it's a both. And, and you're gonna have a certain number of students that their socioeconomic piece, their community, the program they want, they're better served by community or technical college. By the same token, the four-year institution have their niche that they're extremely good at. And it's kind of like you should focus on what you're good at and do that. And I mean, I think we, now here in South Carolina, we're very fortunate that we have good partnerships with the four-year institutions, a lot of transfer agreements that make it good for students to be able to move, uh, from the two and four year institutions. Uh, the reality is it happens both ways though. We have, we graduate 1100 nurses a year. A third of our nursing students are people that have a bachelor's degree and come back to us to become a nurse. So it, it actually moves in both directions from the two and four years. But Mark, well, I, what's your? Well, it, it, let, let me say this, Dr. Harding, yeah. I'm sorry. And Mark, my apologies, we're, we're not gonna, we're gonna run out of time. So I'm, I'm gonna have to ask you to hold on. Sure and ask a question. Carl, I, I, I think your turn to ask a question. So oh, yeah. If, if, so go, looking, looking out, big picture, what is the biggest challenge that you see uh, impacting uh, technical system crop? Because it's a huge uh, partner for us in the business community to have y'all available to train a future workforce. And so what is it that you need from the business community going forward or the General Assembly going forward to help y'all be successful? Um, I really don't have any complaints with the General Assembly. They've been very good to us, and we appreciate that uh, from that standpoint. I mean, you, you certainly can always, you wanna uh, remain in their good graces, and, and but we they understand that we deliver the workforce, and that's a good investment for South Carolina. That, that's our mission. We can't continue to attract the Boeings and BMWs and Volvos of the world if we don't have the workforce that they need. So I think that part, probably my biggest concern is at a time like this, when you have, um, I think Chris mentioned earlier, the people that choose to sit on the sidelines. 
what we can't afford as a state with 5 million citizens in South Carolina and the 10 million or so in North Carolina is the is a large number of people that because of uncertainty are on the sideline hitting the pause button the gap year whatever you want to call that that they simply are putting life on hold we're trying to do all we can to make students aware of even if you can't be a full-time student be a half-time student and work with us in in that way just to not not stay on the sidelines but be a part of developing that workforce Mark, we do have about 30 seconds if you have a quick question. Uh, yeah, quick question um, related to uh, businesses that are reaching out to you around workforce. I wonder if you've seen changes in that. In North Carolina, we've had a number of businesses that have changed to producing PPE and other things like that related to the situation we're in. So just wanted to know if you had any feedback about companies reaching out to you about shifting or changing what they need from the community colleges because of, of COVID-19. And a quick answer, please, Tim. Yes, they have very much. We've, we've seen that and we've partnered with our 16 colleges with their business in their communities. So it's been a good partnership for us. Uh, that was a quick answer. Thank you. <laughs> uh, surprisingly, thank you so much. Not that you couldn't do it. Dr. Hardy, uh, thank you as always for joining us and hope you continue to stay safe and you get that momentum that you've been talking about. Uh, Dr. Little, always nice to see you. Uh, best of luck at Carolina because I know there's some challenges with students and health and also mental health. We didn't even unpack that. And Carl as well, uh, thank you for your comments around uh, the political process. We, we know it's all going to be very interesting. If you'd like to make comments or watch any past programs, go to carolinabusinessreview.org. It's one word. It's long, but it's worth it. carolinabusinessreview.org. Thank you so much for supporting this dialogue. Until next week, I'm Chris William. Good night. Major funding for Carolina Business Review provided by High Point University, Martin Marietta, Colonial Life, The Duke Endowment, Bearings, Grant Thornton, Sonoco, Blue Cross Blue Shield of South Carolina. And by viewers like you. Thank you.